Let's bow together in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that your word says you dwell in the praises of your people. We thank you that we have had the privilege to offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving with the fruit of our lips. And we thank you, Lord, that in doing that, we are the redeemed of the Lord who can say so. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we've had to come to your throne of grace through the ministry of worship from our team this morning. And thank you, Lord, that we are now invited to come into the ministry of your word as well. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will see that your servant rightly divides your word of truth and that it is readily received in each of our hearts as it needs to be. As we have sometimes prayed before, some of us need comfort this morning. Some of us need conviction this morning. Some of us may need clarification for decisions or situations we're dealing with. We thank you, Father, that you are through your Holy Spirit ministering to us, a God for all seasons in our lives and in our hearts. We pray that you will do the work that needs to be done in each of us individually as well as a family of believers collectively and that we will go out this morning better equipped to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we know that God is always good. Sometimes we're aware of it, and sometimes we are truly walking by faith, not by sight. And one of the verses that we've often had quoted to us or reminded ourselves of is, All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, called according to His purpose. Sometimes we're going to have to wait till eternity to see how that fleshes out and comes together with some big things in our lives. But once in a while, God gives us a nice tidy package, and I got one in the last seven days. When Pastor Chris finished up his message, he said, when we gather, we're meant to encourage one another to keep going. You may remember this. We're exhorted, exhorting one another to keep growing, and we're also to be about the business of sowing the seed. And I thought, oh, Chris, this is beautiful. I, you have no idea what, I'm, what I feel has been laid on my heart to bring next week, but he set it up. <laughs> And then this morning, was it Paul? Where are you, Paul? Brother Paul, some, somewhere back here. Anyway, uh, he probably doesn't want to raise, raise his hand because he's modest. Oh, there he is. Okay. He was praying in our pre-service time that, uh, that, uh, he, that, that God would find fertile soil for the seed of the word to grow in. And I thought, oh, beautiful. <laughs> and then Chris, uh, Eric comes up there and he's talking about having good soil for the seed to be planted in. And I thought, Lord, you are so orchestrating this. Nobody had a clue what the, the teaching was going to be about this morning. Turn to Matthew 13. Let's find out. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. And now we're going to go to Luke chapter 8 with that setting that Matthew so beautifully describes by the lake. And we're going to read the same parable of the sower, but as it is presented in the Gospel of Mark. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. 
Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. And that was particularly relevant in the context of that time. But we're going to go focus on to the meaning of the parable. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the seed or the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stand for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. May God add his blessing to this reading. It was holy fully inspired word to our hearts. The basics of, and what is a parable? Uh, Jesus spoke a lot in parables, and Matthew has many of them. And we have one, of course, here in Luke. Uh, A good way of defining a parable is it's a down-to-earth story with a heavenly meaning. A down-to-earth story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus, throughout his ministry in which he used parables, would take real-life situations and from them glean something. It could very well be that as he was standing in that, sitting or standing in that boat, depending on how tipsy it was, he may have looked off to the side of the crowd that was eagerly gathered and brought right down to the shores of the the lake, that he may have seen a farmer off to the side uh, broadcasting his, uh, the seed. And that may have been something that prompted him then to say, this is my connecting point. However, the Spirit of God led him. He used that parable of the sower That is a classic for us today. And in basic Bible study, as some of you may know, we have three basic components. Observation, interpretation, and application. Observation is, what does it say? Interpretation is, what does it mean? Application is, what does it mean for me? Sometimes people will say, what does it mean to me? I'm not comfortable with that. Because some people can go right off into the sunset and say something that's not even in the passage by application. But what it means for me There can be many applications. There's one right interpretation. Sometimes we as believers may agree to disagree on what is the right interpretation about when the rapture takes place in terms of the tribulation, etc. But uh, somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. And if you're like J. Vernon McGee, he'll say, I know some of you out there in in radio land don't agree with me, but when you get to heaven, you'll find out I was right. (laughs) So we can agree to disagree on some secondary issues, Not not, not on the basic things of the Bible is the word of God, Man is sinful and separated from God. Jesus Christ is the only Savior that will get us right with God. Jesus was very clear about that when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But on some applications, we can go in different 
ways to apply it to the relevancy of our lives based on the correct interpretation of the passage. Well, Jesus makes it really easy in this one because he gives us what it says very clearly. So we went out to sow the seed, and seed fell in different kinds of ground. The seed is the word of God. That's part of the interpretation. He made it very clear what the interpretation was about the seed and that the soil can have different, have different kinds of soil. So we're going to run with applications with those things in mind as to how we take the observation and the interpretation of this passage, which Jesus gives us, but now the application and how it's relevant to us. The first thing we want to look at there is the sower of the seed is very essential. It just isn't going to get sown unless there is a sower to sow it, you know. It wasn't that profound. I bet you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> What's interesting to me is that there's something here that can be easily overlooked. But first of all, why do we say that the sower is important in terms of the application when we realize that the seed is the Word of God? How is, this, how is the Word of God going to get out there? It's going to be through the sower, and that sower is, uh, is essential in that sense that the scriptures tell us, how will they hear without a preacher? <laughs> Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ, or King James Version would be word of God, but very similar concept that the word has to be spread for people to be able to respond to it. The passage here indicates something else that I think is important. We can look at it and say, well, this is sowing seed so that people will get saved. And in the Luke passage, it says when it's first sown on the stony, uh, on the, uh, the roadside, Satan comes and takes it away lest they should be saved. So it's clear in the passage that it has to do with salvation. But should it be restricted to salvation? When we have evidence in the passage that says when there is a proper response to the word, it will produce fruit but not just fruit of salvation, but fruit that re- results in 30, 60, 100-fold results, strongly suggesting that we're talking about seed that's planted, germinates, re- brings salvation, also produces a fruitful stewardship of that salvation. We have in First Peter chapter 2 the verse that says, Like newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, so that you will be saved. Not in this passage, so that you may grow thereby. He doesn't want us to stay baby Christians. I think he's saying in this passage, not that you're necessarily newborn. Some of you may be more mature. But have the attitude of newborns in the imagery here of the word as the milk and take it in, whether you're a baby or not, like the milk of the word that a baby would have, so that you may grow thereby. We're meant to grow in the ministry of the word. And every week that you come here, I like to think you come here every week because you know that the seed of the word of God is going to be sown through the public ministry of this church. But let's be careful that we don't restrict it to Pastor Chris or whoever happens to be here when he's off at camp or something because the Bible doesn't say it's restricted to the professionals. If you go to chapter 8 of Acts, after Stephen was persecuted, it said, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then just a couple of lines later, it says, all those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the professionals, if you will. 
the ones who were called to be the leaders, it was everyone who was scattered. So that meant people like you and me. And when Jesus gave the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, he says it to the uh, disciples at that time, but we know it wasn't restricted to the disciples at the time because of what he says at the end. He said, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, that definitely outlasted the lifetime of the disciples. That was what we call the Great Commission. And someone has well said, a great commitment to the great commandment, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, and then your neighbor as yourself, the second is like unto it, he said. A great commitment to that great commandment and a great commitment to the great commission will grow a great church or will grow a great Christian on, a, on an individual basis. A great in the eyes of God in terms of someone who matters, who's fruitful in the, in the, uh, in the program of his kingdom. So we know then that the sower, which interestingly in any one of the synoptic gospels is not identified other than that he's the farmer. When Jesus explains the sower, he doesn't say who it is other than that the sower is the one who sows the seed. He leaves it wide open for the reasons that we're talking about. Because when we compare scripture with scripture, guess who the sower is? It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you and me on an individual basis. The second thing is, not only is the sower absolutely essential, the sower of the seed of the word, but the, 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 the seed of God's word is powerful. And I'm saying things that probably are not new to most of us, but we do need the reminder that the sowing of the seed, which is the word of God, is powerful. Sounds like good rhetoric, doesn't it? But what support do we have for that? Well, you've got Hebrews 4.12 that says the word of God is alive and powerful. It's even sharper than any two-edged sword, so good that it's able to pierce between the, I would add this in there, the otherwise difficult uh, analysis of discerning between the soul and the spirit. I think that's so aptly put. I think we can discern between the soul and the spirit, but that's pretty hard for, hard to be done outside of the Word of God. Scientists haven't figured out how to do that. We also know it's powerful because of what God says in Isaiah, he said, My word that I send forth will accomplish that and will not return without accomplishing that for which I have sent it forth. <clears throat> Jesus says, My words are spirit and they are life. And then in John 17, Jesus says as he's praying his high priestly prayer, Your word is truth. So we've got all these different passages that underscore the fact that we're saying something that's not just nice-sounding spiritual rhetoric, that the seed of the word of God is powerful. We just need to let it loose. Easier said than done sometimes, admittedly, but that's the truth. So how do we spread or scatter the word when we're lay people, if you will? Let's look at some ways that uh, are just down-to-earth illustrations of how we can apply the sowing of the seed and be not scatter-brain Christians spiritually, but scatter-grain Christians fruitfully. It could be a fitting verse. And remember, we're talking about scattering grain in terms of evangelism or edification of saints that are already evangelized. It could be a fitting verse. I have an illustration from my own life that I felt like I needed to use, and I needed to use the KISS method. Keep it simple, saint. <laughs> this was not the time to preach to my dear aunt who has just been locked into Christian science deception for most of her life. She's just, she's an older lady now and she's just locked into it. For her, everything's about love and, and uh, God is, is, is mother, not father. And the blood of Jesus Christ, that doesn't count for anything because that's, 
That's a bloody religion. We don't have a sin problem. We just have an, an Adamic error of the mind. That's, those are characteristics of the heresy of Christian science. I don't mean to be unkind to anybody who has that in their background or there's a, a loved one who, like I have, is tied into that, but we need to call truth and falsehood what it is. And someone has said, and I don't mean to say it unkindly, Christian science is neither Christian nor science. And I thought, I can't say much to my aunt. I'm still her nephew, even though I'm a fully grown person. We've had discussions before, and sometimes they got a little bit uh, 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 confrontive. So I thought in this phone call that I just need to get right to the point and just keep it simple. And I tried to find the uh, connecting point. And because she's all about love, I said, Aunt Jean, isn't it wonderful how God's love is demonstrated in Romans 5, 8? And on the basis of what I just told you about the distinctives of Christian science, you can see how aptly fitting Romans 5, 8 is. God demonstrated his love, connecting point, but his love, not mama's love, but father's love. And mothers, you're great, but the passage is, God is our father. <laughs> Let's be truthful about it. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, not just in Adamic error of mind. I didn't say all that. I just quoted the passage. I'm just amplifying it for you. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. They don't recognize the death of Christ as, as, as an essential because we're not sinners in the first place. In fact, Mary Baker Eddy uh, read a quote that just blew me away. She said, if the man of Galilee never existed, it would make no difference to me. Now, that's heresy, first, first rate. So I just quoted that. Silence at the other end of the phone. I didn't preach to her. I didn't add anything. I just quoted the verse. Now, I'm sure as soon as we hung up, and it, it wasn't an unpleasant visit, she ran off to her Mary Baker Eddy commentary to see how she should process that verse. But I, could, I have reason to count on the fact that when you quote the Word of God and let it loose, God's Holy Spirit is able to run with it and plow it into somebody's soul that at this point is not receptive to it. I have to believe that because of what we just said about the Word. And the jury's still out on that. She's still alive, thank God, and I can still pray for her. It could be a simple word of biblical truth that isn't a verse per se, but it represents biblical truth. Uh, one of my friends, uh, not mine exclusively, but I'll, I'll say my friend, is a, uh, uh, when he was a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, if I rover, roam around, am I going to mess up the camera here? I'll, I'll try to stay, I'll try not to be a wandering pilgrim here. Uh, I said, tell me about some of the experiences you've had as a rescue swimmer. He said, well, one I do remember was a fellow who was, uh, I don't know how this all worked out, but he was out parasailing and apparently at some point must have gotten released from the, the tow rope and was gliding around and he, was, he got himself caught in some trees up on a cliff off the Oregon coast. So here he is dangling out there in some trees in a place where people from the ground could not come up and rescue him. Uh, so they had to send a helicopter out, and our friend, my friend, had to lower himself on a cable to try to get down to this fella and get him untangled from the trees in his parasail and uh, bring him back out through, to be towed up into the helicopter. Well, while he's in the, in the branches of the tree working with this guy and trying to work underneath the, the, the canopy, the helicopter moves off to the side to minimize the downdraft so that it's not, you know, messing up whatever our rescue swimmer is trying to do. And he said, I almost gave up trying to get him released. But he said, finally, I was able to do that. The helicopter with the cable is off to the side. And when I finally got him released from that 
entanglement, he said we went on this big swing ride out off the cliff over the water, and it was an adrenaline rush for both of them, I'm sure. And he said, I just said impulsively, Jesus loves you. (laughs) Amen, Paul? And then he said, to be honest, he said, I thought, oh, man, I just, I just, I just blurted that out. I didn't think about it or anything. I just said, Jesus loves you. And I thought, man, I hope that wasn't inappropriate. But what he does remember is the guy looked at him stunned with wide eyes and didn't say a word. <laughs> so kind of in God's thoughtful confirmation, it wasn't too much longer that I was talking to somebody else who shared the story of how he came to, came to faith in Christ. He said, when I was in the military, we were in the barracks. One day, some Jesus guy came just bursting through the doors, and he says, Jesus loves you. And we thought, yeah, 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 whatever. Jesus loves everybody. We just brushed him off. But he said, years later, when God finally got my attention, that came back to me. And he said, I think in my subconscious, God had this seed there. And these are my terms here, germinating to produce fruit, including the sowing of that seed. Jesus loves you. So sometimes just a simple word that's biblically correct can be seed that will germinate down the road. It may be through a letter or an email that you may be prompted to send to somebody. Uh, Years ago, I think I've shared this, I I used to meet with a group of people for coffee when we lived in the Hillsborough area. And and, uh, one of them was a retired Vietnam, Vietnam fighter pilot. And I remember him telling me about when they go into North Vietnam, he said, these SAMs, uh, you know, they'd lo- he said, you get a flashing beep on your, your screen, and then you know that they're tracking you. He said, when the, when the beep or the, when, the, when the blip goes solid, he said, that's when you're likely to wet your pants, because that means they've launched. He said, what we did learn, at least at that time in the Vietnam era, is that their software could only hand- handle two variables. He said, so what we had learned to do is to throw three variables at them, and make the, the, the missile just go ballistic, just like just flies blind. And he said, so we would change our altitude and our speed and our course, and that would just follow up the computer on the on the uh, the SAM system. He said, sometimes we'd see them flying by our cockpits, biggest telephone poles. And he lived to tell about that. And he was part of our group. And one day, somehow we got onto this uh, subject in our, our group thing where he and I had a little conversation of our own. And he said, well, you know, the Bible is full of errors. And I said, well, Gary, uh, can you give me an example? He said, well, you know, it's full of errors. I said, can you just give me an example? He said, well, yeah, the Bible says that the earth was created in 4004 B.C. I said, no, it doesn't. Uh, now, I, I happen to believe in young earth creationism, but the Bible doesn't say when that was. Uh, and I said, that was uh, a dating that was done by somebody who was attempting to set up a chronology on the basis of the evidence he had, but that isn't what the Bible says. And so after we were through, and, and it, wasn't a, it wasn't an angry conversation. It was just, it was a corrective one. And afterwards, he wanted to throw out an olive branch. He said, well, I just want you to know, I think Jesus was really a great moral teacher. And I thought, can't let it go with that. So, you know, sometimes we think later about what we might have said at the time which may not have been appropriate at the time. So I I wrote a letter to him, and I said, you know, I agree with you that he was, but he was far more than that, and then gave some scripture references to point out uh, who Jesus really was, and uh, said, you know, I I, I quoted C.S. Lewis, too, who has that classic quote that some of you may be familiar with, where he says, uh, uh, Jesus is, is not just a great moral teacher, 
Uh, he's either the Lord that he said he was, or he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. But he said, let's not have any of this patronizing nonsense that Jesus was just another great moral teacher. He did not leave that option to us. He did not intend to. I thought, boy, that's a powerful statement. So I quoted that to him. And I think in that letter, too, although I don't have it in front of me, I think I said, I want to see you in heaven someday. So in a subsequent visit, because now we've moved over to a story, and I, once in a while I come back for some reason to reconnect with the, the old guard. And I noticed on this particular day when we were gathered around our table, I said, where's Gary? And they said, oh, he bailed on us. I said, bailed on us? And then somebody turned to me and said, you haven't heard? And I said, no. He said he and his wife were on their way back from Wisconsin in a trip. Somebody came across the center line, took them both out. So you never know when you, uh, how urgent it is that you take the opportunity you have to plant the seed. And I won't know until eternity if he did business with God before it was too late. So it could be a word. It could be a verse. It could be a letter or an email. It could be the old-fashioned way of tracts. And I know it isn't as popular today as it was many years ago, but let's don't give up on tracts or little booklets. Uh, there's uh, Billy Graham's Steps to Peace with God. The last publication I remember it was a pretty little blue book, and it had about four principles, very similar to Campus Crusade's uh, Four Spiritual Laws. Now, I'm really going to date myself on this one. Anybody here remember the Four Spiritual Laws? Come on, raise your hand, you old guys. Good. All right, great. Those are simple ways to share the gospel. And uh, sometimes when Margie and I would uh, go into a gas station in past years, uh, uh, when, when maybe you had a, a gas station attendant who'd spent a little more time with you, <laughs> uh, I, I would just take out a booklet that was not the way I came to Christ, but I could truthfully say this. I could say, the message in this booklet has changed my life. I'd like you to have this. It's true. The booklet didn't lead me to Christ, maybe, but the gospel in that booklet did. So sometimes you can just simply do that and drive off. Now, they may just turn around and drop it into the trash. You don't know what kind of soil you're dealing with. But you take the opportunity that's given to you to sow the seed wherever you can. And any one of us can do that. So we've got the sower. The sower of the seed is absolutely essential. The seed of the Word of God is very powerful. The soil comes in a wide variety of conditions. <laughs> and this is where we hit reality, isn't it? If you've ever done this for any time, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. And Jesus made it very clear that we've got four kinds of soil here. And rather than just read the text here, I want to just summarize that with giving each of the four types of soil a label. The first one is the closed heart. It's just not interested at the time. And we sometimes have made attempts to share the gospel and the person may get hostile with this. I remember talking to one of the guys in the coffee group we used to have here before COVID shut it down. And then he wound up having a, a, a fatal uh, immune compromised condition that had been haunting him through his life, but now it just came down full bore on him. And I called him one day and, and tried to share the gospel with him. And he, he's, he's already told me he's an atheist. A college graduate, atheist, etc. And I, as I shared the gospel, he said, he said, I feel like you're trying to convert me and you're making me angry. And I said, I'm not trying to make you angry. I just want to see you in heaven. So his heart was closed at that point. It wasn't too long after that that he passed away. But we never know in those closing moments when God says, are you going to do business with me after all? Remember what 
because the, the condition of the soil can be changed. <laughs> when, when Paul had his Damascus Road experience, what did Jesus say to him? Saul, why do you persecute me? Is, is it so hard for you to kick against the goads? His heart was hard. It was even antagonistic. But God had been working on that soil and pulverizing the hardness. And now he finally said, Lord, what will you have me do? <laughs> so the soil condition can change. But it starts sometimes with, a, with, a, with, a, with a, uh, uh, a closed heart. And we can be discouraged at that point. It could also be then a, a, a heart that's I'll call the capitulating heart. It initially receives the word of God. But then when persecution and and trials come, they say, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. You know, this is what Christianity is about. Forget it. So they just chuck it all. Throw in the towel. We don't know what prompted John Mark to leave Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. We have some speculation. But it could have been that there was just a little too much heat in the missionary venture. And, and John Mark thought this was going to be an exciting trip into, into Asia Minor. And I'm just looking forward to the adventure. And then realized... Boy, hanging around Paul is no picnic, and he just bails. We don't know for sure what prompted him. It could have been that at this point in his life, he might have been a capitulating heart. We're not sure, and I'm not going to be fighting on that hill, but just as a possible illustration from, from, for that condition. Then the next one is the heart that receives but gets all cluttered up with riches, the pleasure of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, and doesn't bear fruit. But it indicates it's a heart that has received the word, and I would say this is a saved person, but they allow too much junk into their lives that just chokes out the possibility of being a fruitful believer. So that you've got what I would call a, a cluttered heart. And that's where I think we might find ourselves so easy, uh, easily uh, uh, found sometime. Eric was being honest in his prayer. He says, Lord, forgive me when I allow the... We- you know, the thorns and stuff that clutter in my heart. Who one of us couldn't identify with that prayer of Eric to say there are times in my life, maybe even right now, where I barely made it to church today, where I don't read my Bible, or I just allow all of the cares, the deceitfulness of riches and stuff to just clutter my life so that I don't have time for the things that matter for eternity. And then the last one, of course, is the committed heart. The one that's receptive, and as it describes, describes with a noble heart, bears fruit, and in the other passages, it doesn't spell it out quite as vividly in Luke, but bears fruit 30, 60, 100-fold. The heart that wants to be receptive to the word so that it is a fruitful life. The first thing I want to invite us to do here is to say, where's my heart? I'd like to think that no one here has a closed heart or you wouldn't be here. But it's possible you might be here because a friend encouraged you to come and check it out. But at this point, to be honest, you, you could say in, the, in your heart of hearts, Brother John, I'm just not really, uh, I'm not really ready to buy into this. My heart's closed. I like my life the way it is. And, you know, I'm just here to, to please a friend. Well, I think, well, I think I'd like to encourage you, if that's you, to reconsider where you are. And it may sound melodramatic, but you don't even know if you're going to be like my friend Gary and make it back home from only to Astoria. We know it's a fact. We, we see car accidents all the time. Today is the day of salvation if you haven't accepted Christ. Don't put it off because you don't know if you have another day to do it. And you don't make this decision after you breathe your last breath. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. Hebrews 9.27. After that, they don't come back for a second try. It says after that, the judgment. So if you have a closed mind, please change your mind. 
Jesus loves you, as we pointed out early in the illustration. Don't reject the greatest offer of love. He came to give us abundant life as well as eternal life, both the quality and the quantity of life that only he can give. But some of us might have capitulating hearts. You know, we might feel like life right now is good. I just accepted Jesus in the last couple of weeks. I got baptized. Boy, I, I just my first love is just, whoo, I'm great. And then if the heat, the heat starts to come on and you're getting mocked by friends and relatives and stuff, you're beginning to think, I'm not sure if I really want to hang in there with this. This is not what I signed up for. And you may be struggling with being a capitulating heart. You're encouraged to persevere. The Bible tells us that uh, we are to run our race with endurance, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he says, blessed when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for great is your reward in heaven. You're not going to be a loser by being subjected to the heat. But then the cluttered Christian, oh boy. Yeah, we just talked about that, and I'm not going to belabor it. We need to be aware of the dangers of the world. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2, 15 and following, he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You haven't got room for it. If the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life for which you're buying it, you don't have any room for the love of God to be manifested or experienced in your life. He's warning us, don't, don't get sucked into it. Don't, or as Romans 12, 2 says, don't, or be trans. Uh, be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I like the way the Phillips paraphrase puts it. It's called the Phillips translation. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Isn't that vivid? So beware of the cluttered, the cluttered heart. Don't we all want to be people who have a committed heart so that we can be fruitful? I'd like to think we do. So applying it to our lives is impro- important. And if we have a committed heart, then we're going to be motivated to be uh, uh, <laughs> scatter grain Christians rather than spiritually scatter brain Christians. But let's be honest, because of the different kinds of soil, we have to realize that sometimes sowing the seed of God's word in the hearts of other people is it's, it's slow, and sometimes it can be very frustrating and even discouraging. I'd like to close with an illustration that's going to take about five minutes for me to read. My wife gets the credit for discovering this a few days ago through Randy Elkhorn's Eternal Perspective Ministry. How many of you are aware of Randy Elkhorn? He's a Christian bestseller, written a lot of wonderful books. He's, he's biblically solid. He came across this and shared it through his website. And I'm going to give you a, a, a condensed version, the Reader's Digest condensed version, if you will. But I have to take several minutes, and I'm hoping it will be encouraging to you for the several salient points that come out of this story. On Halloween night in 1998, I threw a party in my apartment at Virginia Tech. I was 20 years old and was in the wildest season of my life. I had three girl roommates, a live-in girlfriend, and I spent most of my spare time smoking weed, doing lines of cocaine, and drinking. On that Halloween night, I was geared up for what I expected to be a party that was going to be so unforgettable. I invited an old friend from high school down for the weekend. Dave, his friend, and I had played hoops and partied together over the years, so I was excited to see him. When he arrived, I greeted Dave and escorted him back to my room where I proudly unveiled my welcome gifts that I had prepared for him. On my desk was a fat bag of weed, a sixer of his favorite beer, and I told him I even had a girl he could get to know for the weekend. But Dave didn't respond like I expected he would. 
Instead, he gently closed the door and sat on the bed. And he looked me in the eyes and told me he didn't do those things anymore. He said he'd become a Christian and that he loved Jesus now. And the reason he came to the party was to tell me that Jesus loved me too. I laughed him off. For the rest of the night, Dave stayed at the party with people going crazy all around him. Other friends came up and asked me, what was up with my buddy? When I told him he was a Christian, we'd all sneer and say, oh, poor guy, like he got a disease or something. But as the night went on, my heart was uneasy. In that room with the music bumping and laughter rolling, I was haunted. As I looked at Dave, I saw he had a peace that no drink or high or lover could give. The party eventually ended, but the story was just beginning. (laughs) Over the next several days, Dave and I spoke about Jesus and about the gospel. He gave me scripture to read and tried to answer my questions and endured my mocking. Sometime later, during another party, a week or so later, I felt myself becoming uncomfortable. I was feeling haunted, though I couldn't explain it to myself. I felt dirty and confused, so I retreated to my bedroom and closed the door, and I said, Okay, God, if you're real, show me something. As I looked down in exhaustion, I saw the corner of a Bible that my parents had given me when I went off to college. Until that night, it had been hidden under my bed. But for some reason that night, it was peeking out. (laughs) I sat at my desk, And played Bible roulette. I don't recommend this, but God is good. I'm adding that. The the Bible opened to Ezekiel 18. I began reading and came to this. The person who sins is the one who will die. But if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten and they will live. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the Sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die? I don't want you to die, says the Sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. That, he said, freaked me out. (laughs) So I closed the Bible and I said, God, let's try it again. I opened again, and this time, it fell open to Romans 2, where it says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? (laughs) That really freaked me out, he said. A few weeks later, I was at home on Christmas break, and I was doing a drug called ecstasy. Sometime after midnight, I became strangely sober, and felt an overwhelming burden to call my friend Dave. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, Dave came to my house, carrying his Bible with tears rolling down his cheeks. (laughs) We sat down, and I told him I needed to know more about God. He asked me if I knew what he was doing when he called me earlier that evening. He went on to tell me that when I called him, he was doing the same thing he had been doing every night since he left Virginia Tech. He was on his knees praying for me. Over the next few days and weeks, I continued to read the Bible and have conversations with Dave. He told me that God made me to love and worship him 
He explained that the guilt I was feeling was God showing me that I was in rebellion against him and was on my way to hell. He explained that Jesus died for sinners like me and then rose from the dead to extend mercy to me if I would just turn from my sins and believe in Jesus. He told me that Jesus would forgive all of my sins, change my life, and make me his forever. I'm not sure if that was the night or if it was in the weeks that followed, but God saved my soul. You see, Dave made a stand for Christ that night at Virginia Tech, he says. God used him to get a message to me that eternally altered my life. Now, every Halloween night, I call Dave and thank him for the stand. God used Dave's stand to save my soul and my life from utter destruction. It's not over yet. I am a very unlikely person to be a Christian. I loved my sin. I loved my life. But I had a very hard heart. Dave was the, get this, the 17th person to have some sort of gospel conversation with me. I didn't want Jesus, but for some reason, he wanted me. So, question that's left with this posting was, who's the most unlikely person you know to become a follower of Jesus? Take a moment to think. You just might be the person God uses to get the gospel to them. Make a stand for Christ. I would say, sow the seed and trust him to use it for his glory. That stand, that sowing of the seed, just might save a soul. Where is Garrett Kell today? He is now an author and the pastor of a church in Alexandria, Virginia. And he also posts, according to Randy Alcorn here, great things on Twitter. Now, I'm not a Twitter person, but I know a lot of people are, including video clips, sometimes quite funny ones, which he pairs with spiritual insights. So you just never know how far that seed will go in sowing, not only to salvation, but in bearing fruit in the stewardship of that life as well as yours, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Because even though sowing the seed can sometimes be very slow, and you may be only one of 17, perhaps, you're part of a team effort. That may seem frustrating at the time, but may we remember two scriptures. One's from Psalm 126 that says, Those who go out sowing seeds even with tears shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. And then in the New Testament, Be not weary in well-doing, for you will reap in due time if you do not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, as the worship team comes up, we just thank you for the fact that you have privileged each one of us to be sowers of the seed. And that seed is the powerful word of God, your word. And we thank you that we have a a field to sow it wherever we find that field. We don't know if it's going to germinate or not, but our job is to be, in a reverent sense, scatter grain Christians fruitfully, not scatter brain Christians spiritually. And so, Lord, may each one of us take renewed heart to know that whatever opportunities we take to sow your seed, your word, when all is said and done, will not return 
without accomplishing that for which you sent it forth. In Jesus' name, amen.